morning. Um, I apologize for keeping the doors closed so long, but uh, I can't speak for anybody else in discipleship. I was having a wonderful time, and we, time kind of got away from us as we're talking about God's work of revival. Uh, but uh, good news this morning, I uh, heard from Barbara Demeter, and uh, she did not need to go uh, to the hospital, uh, and uh, the issues that she was having uh, seemed to have corrected themselves, so we are grateful for that. Praise God for that. A uh, number of things to look at in your, your bulletin. Of course, today uh, we'll be having lunch together after the service and then joining once again here for going deeper this afternoon to talk about discernment. One of the things that we were talking about this morning in regard to revival is the need to discern whether something is actually from God or not. Uh, and the scripture warns us that there will be false teachers and false prophets, and even to the point of false signs. And so uh, we're going to gather together this afternoon after um, uh, lunch and talk about that, testing the spirits. How is that accomplished and why is that necessary? And how do we respond to people? This is another part of it. We've all heard people inside and outside the church tell us, you know what? Jesus says you shouldn't judge. Don't judge or you're going to be judged. <laughs> How do you obey the command to be discerning if you're not going to judge? How do we put those things together? We're going to be talking about that this afternoon. So please join us. If you're here this morning visiting with us for the first time, um, or if you just didn't know we were going to be doing this later today, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, don't worry if you haven't brought anything with you. We've always got enough. So please uh, make it a point of remaining and enjoying the fellowship and uh, our discussion this afternoon. Next Saturday morning, April 1st, will be our men's breakfast, and that takes place 8, 8 to 10 downstairs. So men, please come and join us for that. Bob G. and Sarah from Grace and Truth Church will be with us next Saturday morning. April 8th, ladies, uh, your study on the names of God will continue up. That's fine. Okay, now, if my math is correct, that's the 15th. All right. Nope, nope, not a problem. I encourage public correction when I am making an error, so that's, that's good. <laughs> no, that's great. Ladies, April 15th, not the 8th. Uh, that will be the continuation of your study on the names of God. And um, please keep a, an eye, as always, on the prayer requests in the bulletin as well. Psalm 19, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, this is my prayer personally 
As I come this morning and and this afternoon as well to open your word, Father, I desire that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. But Father, we desire that for our entire day, for everything that takes place here as we worship you, that what we sing and what we pray and what we read and share from the scripture would be acceptable in your sight. And we know, Father, that that can only take place because we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for this. And we pray that everything that takes place this day would be honoring to you. And that you, Father, in turn, uh, would meet the needs of your people. That we would hear your voice in your word. That we might be encouraged, Father. That we might be convicted that we might be brought to a a place of joy as we consider all of the grace which is now ours. In all of these things, Father, may Jesus be magnified. It is in his name that we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together, hymn number nine, Holy God, we praise thy name. Holy God, we praise thy name, Lord of all, we bow before thee. All on earth thy scepter claim, all in hands above adore thee, infinite thy vast domain, everlasting is thy reign. Hark the loud celestial above our raising cherubim and seraphim in the ceasing chorus praising fill the hands with sweet accord holy 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 Apostolic train, join thy sacred name to hallow. Prophets swell the glad refrain, the white robed martyrs follow, and from morn to set of sun. Church, the song goes on. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three we name thee, while in essence only one. 
standing as the word of God is read for us. We are continuing our reading in Jeremiah. We'll be looking at Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 45 through 58. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, from, come forth from her mist, my people, and each of you save yourselves from the fierce anger of the Lord. Now, so that your heart does not grow faint, and you are not afraid of the report that will be heard in the land. For the report will come once a year, and after that, another report in another year. And violence will be in the land, with ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, Days are coming when I will punish the idols of Babylon, and her whole land will be put to shame, and all her slain will fall in her mist. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon, for the destroyers will come to her from the north, declares the Lord. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel. As also for Babylon, the slain of all the earth has fallen. You who have escaped the sword, depart. Do not stay. Remember the Lord from afar and let Jerusalem come to your mind. We are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Disgrace has covered our faces for aliens have entered the holy place of the Lord's house. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will punish her idols, and the, mortality, and the mortality wounded will groan throughout her land. Though Babylon should ascend to the heavens, and though she should fortify her lofty stronghold, from me destroyers will come to her, declares the Lord. The sound of an outcry from Babylon, and of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans, for the Lord is going to destroy Babylon, and he will make her loud noise vanish from her, and their ways will roar like many waters. The tumult of their voices sounds forth. For the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered, for the Lord is a God of recompense, and he will fully repay and I will make her princes and her wise men drunk, her governors, her prefects, and her mighty men, that they might sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon will be completely raised and her high gates will be set on fire. So the people will toil for nothing, and the nations become exhausted only for fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've been witnessing a terrible judgment that's coming upon Babylon, all because of her many sins. 
In particular, the way that she's treated the people of God who've been sent into captivities for the past or will be sent for, the, for 70 years. And of course, what we keep seeing over and over is the uh, destruction that will come upon them. But one of the things I want to concentrate on is today is that God seems to take aim at their idols, the idols of Babylon. But why does he take aim at the idols? Well, there's a clue even within the hymn that we sung today. God is three in one. Three persons, one essence. You don't find a fourth. You don't find a fifth, a sixth, or seventh. No matter how many idols are in the world, they are not included within the Holy Trinity of God. So I suspect God is pretty angered by that whenever we add to his nature. And of course, as it turns out, man, whether both male or female, have been created to worship. Whether you consider yourself religious or not, the fact is everyone worships something. The problem that we see here as we've been reading through all these judgment stems from the fact that people are not practicing biblical worship. And of course, this is the main point of Jeremiah's warning that the people have constantly failed to heed. Instead of worshiping the true God, the creator, they worship created things. And of course, what we see here is that when the object of our affection and worship are directed to anyone else or anything else but God, we're no longer practicing biblical worship but idolatry. And that's what's been at the people's trouble. This is why they are today facing all these judgment. When it comes down to it, Jeremiah has been preaching and preaching for years. No one has listened. But instead, they cling tighter to their idolatry. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, think about that. You contemplate that every day? Now, while hating your family or yourself is not a commandment in the scriptures, it is indicative of it not being our priority when it comes to serving Christ. What's being communicated here is that God is to be the ultimate priority of our lives. We're supposed to deny our own selves. Either God is the Lord of our life or he's not. So that wasn't the case for Israel. That wasn't the case for Judah. That wasn't the case for Babylon. That isn't the case for any other nation, even our nation today. Does it concern you that you see all the turmoil that it's all about in our nation? It's no different than what was going on in Babylon. It would seem that history repeats itself over and over again. Upon the second return of Christ, we're going to see the same judgment take place. 
He'll judge idol worshipers and their idols. Let me remind you that all the unsaved who walk among us are idolaters because God has no priority in their lives. Instead, he's been replaced with other things. But, thank be to God for his mercy and grace. We who are saved are no longer counted amongst the idolaters and are in fear of judgment. Paul will conclude this by saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you. And before that, he had named idolatry as one of the sins that we were involved with. But that's not the case anymore. Why? Because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So, while there's no condemnation in Christ, for those of us who name him as Lord and Savior, let's be bold like Jeremiah, preaching the gospel, warning against sin and the sin of idolatry, which is rampant in our world today, so that men, women, and children will practice true biblical worship, making God their ultimate priority in their lives. Amen? Father, it's good to be reminded that you take worship very seriously. We'll be seeing that once again, Father, as we turn to Leviticus in a few moments. It is good to be reminded of this. You are a God who demands to be worshipped in the way that you desire, in the way that you have commanded. And of course, that is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And the truth is, Father, that As Paul says, there is no such thing as an idol, except for those idols that we establish for ourselves, which takes place any time we put something in your place, whether it be a thing or a person or ourselves. Our brother has reminded us, Father, that Paul tells us that these things were true of us, But we have been washed clean. And to say that, Father, is not a statement of self-righteousness. It's a recognition of grace. Because you have done that, and not we ourselves. And you are still doing that, Father. So we would pray that even as we confess our own sin before you, Father, we pray that you would indeed continue to save out of this fallen world. Turn idolaters to you and build your church, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's return this morning to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we pick up with verse 33. I'll be reading through verse 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. 
Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant at that, as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Father, many of us as we come to read the words of the psalmist are struck by the fact that our hearts are different than his. How many times, Father, do we pray like the psalmist prays? How many times, Father, is our concern with the desire to know your word and be changed by it? How often do we pray, make me walk in the path of your commandments? How often do we declare that we delight in those commandments? Father, here is what we can pray along with the psalmist today. Revive us. Revive us, Father, so that we have hearts that have been so changed that we do recognize these things that the psalmist is declaring. And we experience them in our own lives. May we dread reproach. May we long for your precepts. May we delight in your commandments. May we desire understanding so that we may observe your law. Father, if these things will be true of us, it will only be because you make them true of us. This is why the psalmist pleads to be revived. Revive us, Father. Revive me. Revive this church that we might love your law and we might love you, the lawgiver. It will be your work, Father. It has to be. And so we plead with you, Father, do it among us. Raise us from our sleep. Revive us, Father. Give us a desire to see men and women come to faith in Christ. Father, but before you do that, wake us up. Revive us. Give us our first love. Change us, Father, to your glory. For your glory. For the good, Father, not only of this church and its future, but for the good of the world around us. The world will not be changed until we are changed. 
And we cannot change ourselves. By your grace, Father, do good to your people. We plead, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.
Let's pray for the ministry of the word. Father, today we come to hear from you and may you speak. Use our pastor to communicate the truth as he's taken the time to study and bring forth the word of God to us. That upon hearing, we might take action as you've called us to. Father, bless him and be with him for this time. We pray in your name. Amen. We return this morning to the book of Leviticus. A book which Moses wrote when God had spoken to him. His intent being, of course, to pass on what God had said to the people. So this morning we turn to Leviticus chapter 2. Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Now if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, It shall be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering, which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a a soothing aroma to the Lord." The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. 
The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. Father, help us to profit from your word today. We ask this, Father, knowing that all of your word is profitable, but knowing as well, Father, our dependence upon you. Do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. After the Exodus, God spoke to Moses and gave him a law for his people. Now, God knew, of course, that the people would transgress this law. But instead of giving up on his people, he provided a means of atonement for their sins so that they would be able to come into his presence. The sacrificial system was that means of atonement. As we saw last week in the first chapter of Leviticus, we have there described for us the first type of sacrifice, and that is the burnt offering. This morning we turn to the second chapter and the second sacrifice, the grain offering. The burnt offering and the grain offering, as we might expect, contain both similarities and dissimilarities. Both the burnt offering and the grain offering were offered by fire. They both had to be of the best quality, and they both resulted in a soothing aroma to the Lord. But of course, the most obvious difference between the two was that the burnt offering was an animal, and the grain offering consisted of either cooked or uncooked grain. The burnt offering was a blood offering, the grain offering was not. All of the burnt offering was consumed on the altar, but only a portion of the grain offering was burned on the altar. The rest was taken by and consumed by the priests. What all this boils down to, as we shall see, is that the burnt offering was about atonement and the grain offering is about worship. This chapter falls into four basic divisions. If you want a brief little outline for it, verses 1 through 3 focus on the offering of uncooked grain. Verses 4 through 10 provide the regulations regarding the offering of cooked grain or unleavened bread. Verses 11 through, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, verses 11 through 13 state what could and could not be added to the grain offering. And verses 14 through 16 introduce the offering of the first fruits of the grain harvest. That's the portion that our friends down south like so much because it talks about grits. The Hebrew word for grain offering is elsewhere used to refer to gifts that people gave to a king. Vassal nations paid tribute to kings whom they recognized as their lords, their superiors. For example, the Moabites and the Arameans were subject at one point to King David, and they paid him tribute because they recognized that they were indeed subject to him. 
can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 8. When King Hoshea of Israel withheld tribute from King Shalmaneser of Assyria, Shalmaneser saw it as an act of rebellion, and he came down and attacked and conquered Israel. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. So the meaning of the word used here for grain offering included the act of a servant nation offering a gift to the nation over them. Thinking of that use of the word may help us when we read of giving grain offerings to God. But Israelites gave grain offerings to God not merely because they recognized rightly God as their overlord, but because he is indeed God. They offered him not only service and allegiance, they offered him the worship that he is due because he is the only God. In the contexts of Leviticus chapter 2, we see that this word is being used specifically and exclusively for this grain offering. The purpose of the grain offering, as we mentioned before, is not atonement, it is worship. God provides the produce of the land. God's people worship him as the one who provides all good things. He is the Lord. He is the king. And in bringing their gifts to him, his people are expressing their allegiance to him. As they brought the sacrifice, they were thanking God for his provision. They were dedicating their harvest to him. And they were symbolizing in that act their loyalty to him, their dedication to him. They're saying, God, I now dedicate myself and all that I own to you, knowing that me, my life, all that I am and all that I have belongs to you. We not only feel gratitude, we demonstrate it. We not only talk about our dedication to God, we act upon it. The purpose of the grain offering then is not atonement but worship. In the grain offering, God's people acknowledge that God had provided for them. As they bring their sacrifice, they are dedicating their grain to God, symbolizing the dedication of their own lives, and they are thanking him for their provision, for his provision. That's what God's people do in worship today. We bring a gift to God. Worship is an act of dedication by which God's people say, God, I dedicate myself and my possessions to you. Now, not one of us comes into this place at any point Writing a check for the totality of our worth. We give a portion. The Israelites in the grain offering were called to give a portion 
First, just a portion of their grain in total, but then even a portion of that portion to be burnt on the altar while the rest of the offering went to the priests. But in that same way, they're demonstrating through the giving of a little that the whole belongs to the Lord. So when we worship God with our gifts, our giving to God is an act of gratitude. We know that what we have comes from him. So in giving to God, we are thanking God and praising God for his gift of our daily bread. That's what the Israelites were doing. God gave them all they had and he told them to bring a part of the produce as an offering. That being the case, each of us needs to ask ourselves... Are we grateful to God for what we have, or have we simply grown accustomed to having a roof over our heads and clothes on our backs and food on our tables? Show me someone who is not grateful to God for what he has, and I'll show you someone who has forgotten that God is the one who has allowed him to have it. People who aren't grateful to God for what they have, end up thinking they've earned it. They deserve it. What we have comes from God, and giving some of it to God reminds us that it all comes from him. If we're dedicated to God, we will be a grateful people. That is one of the characteristics of a child of God. If you go back, and when you have time, you can do this. Read through Romans chapter 1, where Paul's talking about the unbelieving world. And he talks about those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and go off into idolatry. And one of the characteristics of people like that, Paul says, is that they do not give thanks. Now you take Paul's argument there and you flip it on his head. What is he saying? Saying that if you are truly a child of God, one of the things that's going to characterize you is that you give thanks. So what does all this mean in regard to our giving? Note in verse 1. Verse 1 mentions that the grain offering is to be of fine flour. That word translated fine flour is used five times in this chapter. It was a special word that referred to finely ground flour. In the Old Testament, it's used to refer to the finest of flour, ground exclusively from the inner kernels of the wheat. And although this kind of flour was available to all, it was expensive and it was considered to be a luxury item. It was understood to be used especially in the entertaining of very important guests. Pulling out your fine china when the boss comes over. So this was not your everyday all-purpose flower. Verse 1 also says that God told them to add frankincense to the grain. Now, this is increasing the value of the offering because frankincense was not cheap. As was true of the burnt offering, the offering that God's people brought was to cost them something. 
but not everyone could afford frankincense. What then? Well, in that case, if you look at verses 4 through 7, we read that they could cook their grain into unleavened bread. If we are dedicated to God, we won't bring something second rate. We'll bring the best. And if we have money to get the best, then we will spend it. And if we don't have the money, we'll spend the time to make our gift as good as it can be. That's the idea. Bring the grain. And if you can afford it, dump some frankincense on it. And if you can't, cook up a little something. Remember that when God gave these laws to his people, they're in the wilderness. This is in the midst of the exodus. We can get confused because, you know, through the week, if you're joining us in our Bible studies, we're talking about a whole lot of different eras in Israel's history. We're in the book of Judges on one day, and we're in 2 Samuel and, and David on the next day, and you know, it kind of can get confusing. What time period are we in? What's going on now? Well, in Leviticus, we're still in the wilderness. We haven't yet come into the promised land. And so they are wandering in the wilderness. They're not growing wheat or barley or any other kind of grain. They're not growing anything. They are nomads, not farmers at this point. That in itself would have made this fine flour rare and valuable. There was a very limited amount of available grain. That was also true of the olive oil that was to be poured upon it. Some have speculated that the grain they gave to God must have been the seed grain, which they were saving for that time when they did enter into the land and had to plant a crop. And if that were the case, they were not only acknowledging God's provision for them, they were also trusting God to provide for them in the future. They're using up their seed grain. What are they going to do when they get into the land? Remember, they got 40 years of wilderness wandering to get through. Well, they must have considered the fact that God will take care of that. If they use up all the grain along the way, offering the grain sacrifice to the Lord, surely he's going to take care of that seed grain. So they're trusting in the future as well as thanking God for what he has provided in the past. And I wonder if that's your kind of giving. Do you give acknowledging that all you have is from him and do you give trusting him to provide for the future as well? When's the last time you gave to God in such a way that your reserves were depleted? When's the last time you gave to God in such a way that your life changed as a result? Dedication to God calls for giving our best 
as we look back in thanksgiving and as we look forward trusting him for the future. That's what the grain offering is doing. If you look at verses 4 and, and, and verse 11, we find that God allowed no yeast. When you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. Verse 11, no grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. Now what's the problem with leaven? What's the problem with yeast? That's what the leaven is. Biblically, yeast is associated with corruption, which in turn becomes a symbol for sin. The process of leavening includes fermentation, which is a form of decay and therefore is related to death. In Leviticus, we're dealing with two realms One realm is holiness, which is the realm of life. And the other is the realm of the profane, which is the realm of death. And God's people are to stay in the realm of holiness, the realm of life. And they were to stay away from the realm of the profane, the realm of death. Yeast was associated with death, and so it was to be kept away from worship. It had no place there. And of course we find this association between yeast and corruption throughout the scripture. Not only here. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said to keep away from the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. Which is hypocrisy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul mentions sexual immorality and malice, and evil, and he refers to all of that as yeast. And he warns the church to get rid of the yeast. Don't let the leaven of sin into the church, because just a little bit permeates the whole lump of dough. The point which is being communicated here is is that when we come to worship, we are to exclude corruption. Scores of statements in scripture emphasize that God's people cannot offer acceptable worship to God if the way we're living is not acceptable to God. Sinful living, sinful thinking is yeast. It is leaven. It is corruption. Now let's clarify something. That doesn't mean that sinners are not welcome in worship. All of you are welcome. Every one of us here this morning is a sinner. The only kinds of people who can worship God are sinners. At this point, that'll change in the future, but right now, the only people who ever worship God are sinners. 
And we gather for worship to seek God and to confess our sin and to seek his forgiveness for sin and his power over sin in our lives. The difference between people who offer right worship and those who do not is that right worshipers are sinners who know that they are sinners. And they grieve over it. Right worshipers know that they need God. And they know that they need atonement. And they know that they need salvation. And that salvation can only come from God through his son, Jesus Christ. That ultimate offering for sin. Do you see now why the burnt offering comes first and then the grain offering? There's got to be atonement before there can be worship. Worthy worship excludes corruption. All the laws God gave his people from Mount Sinai and from the tabernacle were given in the context of relationship. God established a relationship with Israel when he made a covenant with Abraham. And he made the promises of that covenant, and he he kept the promises of that covenant, when he providentially protected Abraham's descendants and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. God made another covenant with his people at Sinai. He said to them that the whole earth is his, but if they will obey his voice and keep his commands, they would be his treasured possession. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God and his people were in a covenant relationship. The sacrificial system maintained that relationship. It ensured the continuation of communion between God and his people. The grain offering accomplished that in at least two ways. In verse 13, we read that God told his people to season their grain with salt. And that salt is referred to as the salt of the covenant of your God. In the ancient Near East, salt represented a covenant. It was always used in the making of a covenant. In Babylon, if people said that they had tasted the salt of some particular tribe, they are saying that they have entered into covenant with that tribe. In Persia, if persons were loyal to the king, they were said to have tasted the salt of the palace. Arab Bedouins referred to a treaty between people saying there is salt between us. When God's people added salt to their grain offerings, they were remembering the covenant relationship that they had with God and they were declaring that it was still in force. The salt represented that covenant. They also knew that salt is a preservative, of course, and they were symbolizing the continuation of that covenant. This is what we do in worship. We have a covenant relationship with God. We are members of what scripture refers to as the new covenant. 
which is established through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ for our sin. When Jesus shared his last supper with his apostles, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When we come to worship as the people of God, we remember the covenant we have with the Lord through the blood of Jesus. And in worship, we affirm that covenant. Twice in God's description of the grain offering, he said that the grain given to be burned on the altar was the memorial portion. The word translated memorial is from a word that refers to remembering. As the Israelites offered this sacrifice, they remembered. What did they remember? Well, surely God intended them to remember him. His deliverance, the atonement, For sin, he had just accomplished in the burnt offering. He intended them to remember their dedication to him. So the grain they burned on the altar was the memorial portion, and the remaining grain was given to the priests as food. In that way, the priests had food to eat because a workman is worthy of his hire. Just as in the New Testament, those who proclaim the gospel are to make their living from the gospel, Paul says. Now we hear what Paul says there, and right away we're, we kind of hesitate, because it sounds a little wrong. Those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel, as if there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, brothers and sisters. This is what God says the church is to do in providing for the one who comes and proclaims the word of God in their midst. Here, that work was done through these grain offerings. The people supported the priests by giving them the remaining portion of the grain offering. But I want you to just think with me for a moment about this idea of memorial and remembrance. Is there a new covenant counterpart to this? Well, I hope you would all say yes, obviously. It has to do with this table down here. What is the Lord's table? What are we told to do when we come around the Lord's table? We are told to remember as we partake of the cup and of the bread. We're not remembering Exactly the same things that the Israelites were, in broad strokes certainly, but we have something much more specific to remember. We remember not the blood of a bull that had been spilled, but the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which now accomplishes our salvation. The grain, we read in verse 3 and verse 10, was given to the priests and it was called most holy That leftover grain was most holy. What we give as an offering, we give to God. It demonstrates our dedication to to him. In the case of the grain offering, part of the offering was burned. Part was given to support the priests. But all of it, even that portion which went to the priests, was given to God. Therefore, it was all holy. 
you write your check, you put it in the giving envelope, you stick it in the box in the back. Part of that comes to me. Thank you. But when you do that, I hope you're not thinking in your mind, well, I'm really giving this to pastor. I doubt you are, but I hope you're not. You're giving it to the Lord. Everything we give. When we come into this place to worship, which giving is an act of worship, everything we give is his. And is used in the way that he instructs us according to his word. Because praise God, he has given us men who are good stewards of that which his people give unto him. It is all holy. Now we understand here in the new covenant, Jesus is the center of Christian worship. We exalt him every time we gather with God's people to worship. We sing praise to Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus because through his sacrifice on the cross, we have access into the very presence of God. The preaching points to Jesus because the whole word of God points to him. We encourage people to put their faith in Jesus Christ because salvation is only in Jesus Christ. How does the description of the grain offering teach us to exalt Jesus? Let me give you a couple of things. First, Jesus is our example in showing gratitude. The grain offering was given in gratitude for God's provision. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he uttered a blessing before he gave the people the bread and the fish. Later, when he fed 4,000, he gave thanks before he gave them the bread. When he shared the Last Supper with his apostles, he took the bread and gave thanks, and took the cup and gave thanks. Jesus gave thanks. So should we. Jesus is our example of gratitude. He is also our example of dedication. The grain offering, as we have said, was an enactment of dedication to God. Jesus is God the Son. He is perfectly dedicated to the Father. In his earthly ministry, he said, I don't do or say anything unless the Father tells me to do or say it. That is dedication to the Father. The book of Hebrews says that the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant is obsolete because Jesus has fulfilled it, and in him we have a new covenant. And in the midst of that discussion, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jesus as Jesus quotes Psalm 40. And he wrote that Jesus said to the Father, You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. 
That statement by Jesus expresses the heart of the sacrificial system and his own heart. Jesus said to the Father, you did not delight in burnt offerings and sin offerings. It has never been the offering itself that has pleased God. It has always been what the offering represents. It's about the heart behind the offering. It's about the penitence for sin, the desire for forgiveness, the dedication to God in the heart of the worshiper. That's what God is pleased with. Calvin wrote this, What could be more vain or frivolous than for men to reconcile themselves to God by offering him the foul odor produced by burning the fat of beasts? or to wipe away their own impurities by sprinkling themselves with water or blood. God did not enjoin sacrifice in order that he might occupy his worshipers with earthly exercises, but rather that he might raise their minds to something higher. What we're finding here in Leviticus is not intended to stay in Leviticus. It's to point us to something higher, and his name is Jesus. Calvin went on to cite the prophets who criticized God's people in the Old Covenant for imagining that mere sacrifices have any value in the sight of God. And he wrote that the prophets were not criticizing God's law about sacrifices. They were criticizing the people for performing mere earthly exercises when God meant to raise their minds to Jesus. God meant his people to offer sacrifices mindful of the atonement that he was providing and would provide and mindful of their dedication to the God that they are worshiping. The sacrifices were not meant to be the equivalent of paint by number. Just wrote, just going through the motions, following the instructions. The sacrifices were about the heart. And our sacrifices, our giving, our offerings are to be about the heart. So what we do in worship today, we praise God for the atonement for sin which he has accomplished in Christ for us. We dedicate ourselves to God. If we're not doing that, then Calvin's words apply to us. Our worship is vain and frivolous. No more than an earthly exercise. Well, thank God Jesus gives us the perfect example of what to do in worship and what to do every day. The writer of Hebrews quoted him as saying, I have come to do your will, O God. That's what we're doing, isn't it? Committing ourselves to doing his will. Paul wrote about dedicating ourselves to God And he used the language of presenting an offering to God. He said in Romans 6, Do not offer any parts of it to sin, that is your body. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God. And all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for his righteousness. That's the picture. What are we offering? We're not just offering our money, we're offering ourselves, every part of us. 
Paul wrote those words after emphasizing that our old self was crucified with Christ and now we have new life in Christ. He said, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. In other words, just as God's power raised Jesus from the dead, his power enables us to live in a new way. So Paul exhorts followers of Jesus to consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How are we able to please God by dedicating ourselves to him? We can do that because Jesus has made us new. Before Jesus, nothing in us wanted to dedicate ourselves to God. Nothing within us wanted to be dedicated to doing God's will. But Jesus has put to death the old self. He has put to death sin. And he has given us a new life that now delights to do the will of our Father. Atonement for sin isn't mentioned here in Leviticus 2. It's because it's already been achieved in the burnt offering of Leviticus 1. That order is important. Before we can please God with our dedication, our sin must be taken away. We have to already be the kind of people who want to dedicate ourselves to God. And that's what Jesus does in us. He makes that dedication possible. Jesus is the first fruits. You look at verses 14 through 16, and it addresses the offering of first fruits to the Lord. When the grain harvest began to ripen, now obviously this is after they're in the land, God said, bring some of the first ripe grains to him in worship. It was an act of faith to give up the first of the harvest, trusting that God would provide the rest of the harvest which would follow. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote about the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection in Jesus. And Paul called Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And when he does that, Paul is using Levitical language to express the fact that the resurrection of Jesus is the first of a great harvest of resurrections. A harvest of resurrections concerning those who will then be gathered into heaven for worship. And sometimes I think I get a glimpse of what that is going to be like. I hear you sing. Your voice is joined in giving praise to God. We pray and I feel the presence of God powerfully among us. I see one of us expressing love to another and I know it's the love that God has poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And still, our worship always falls short of heaven's worship. Here we see in a mirror dimly. There we shall see face to face. Here our faith is mixed with doubt and our holiness is compromised by sin. In heaven, doubt and sin won't even exist. Only Jesus 
ever worshipped perfectly here on earth. Then he died as a sacrifice for our sins. So when we put our faith in him, he forgives our sin, he reconciles us to God, and he gives us new and eternal life. He rose from the grave and we who know him will be raised as well. And we will be with him forever. Both here and there, it is Jesus who is and who always will be the center of our worship. May God help us to worship well until we see him face to face. Father, this is our prayer for you this morning. Help us to worship well until we see Jesus, until we are with him, until doubt and sin no longer plague us. May our worship, Father, be sacrificial. May we give you our best. May our worship be in spirit and in truth. For Christ's sake, amen. Let's stand together. Hymn 385. May this be our prayer. Take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to thee Take my feet let them move at the impulse of thy love, at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Always only for my King Take my lips and let them be Filled with messages for would I withhold. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet his treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. Please join us downstairs for lunch.
Once we're all down there, we'll pray and we can eat. <laughs>